So today, we're going to be getting into some interesting and maybe slightly controversial topic. It's obviously going to be controversial between Protestants and Catholics, but I'm going to bring up some stuff uh, when it comes to even the history of Catholic interpretation of this passage that might make some uncomfortable. Okay, but before we get into that, um, remember to go to patreon.com slash militantomist to become a patron. Help me out to do more of what I do, and you can get free PDFs, articles, and and whatever. If you also go to christianbwagner.com slash shop, then you can get some of the books that I reprint. I'm still editing that page, and I haven't actually had the time to finish editing it, so it's missing a few books, but most of the good stuff is there, and that is all I have for you, so I'm going to pull up my notes, and then we'll get right into it. You're hyped for this episode. That's good. Yeah, the other Paul and I had a little bit of a tussle earlier this week when it comes to this. So I'm going to pull up my notes and then I'm going to go and pull up. I'm going to be reading probably from, I'm just going to read from the Dewey Reams because, you know, it's the inspired version. Let's see. I always misspelled Dewey. It's such a weird word. Okay. Where is it? There it is. I've seen like 3,000 tabs open up right now. <clears throat> okay. So if we're going to be looking into the context of John 6. I'm going to first, uh, before I get into actually dealing with the text of John 6, I'm going to be reading through John 6 and showing you how this interpretation is going to be working, the logic of it's going to be working through the text, which is going to be really fun. But before that, I'm going to kind of give a bit of an overview Um of, of the interpretive framework that's going to be uh, used when reading John 6. Um, how how uh, the history of biblical interpretation has treated John 6, including in the patristic period, all the way up until, um, until the Catholic theologians of the 19th century with how they read it, and then also Protestant theologians and such. So we're going to be looking at the context of John 6. So the, the specific loci, which most people are going to point to when it comes to the Eucharist, is going to be John 6, 26 to 72. But if we go back and uh, look at the preceding day, uh, the day before uh, all the events of John 6 happened, you get two interesting miracles. So the first one is going to be the multiplication of the loaves and the fishes. And this is going to show our Lord's creative power when it comes to being able to uh, create uh, from, from more loaves and fishes, from loaves and fishes. 
And the second one's going to be the miracle of the walking uh, on the waters. And this is going to show something uh, transcending created power. So both of these, uh, what, what, what is shown for our Lord is that he transcends and is independent and superior to the laws of nature. So then in the beginning of this chapter, in chapter 6, what you get is the great multitude are coming around of our Lord, and they have these uh, false messianic hopes, and they desire to see miracles, and uh, they go and they find them at Capernaum. And this is this is where, uh, uh, contextually, we get into this uh, discourse. So if we're looking at the discourse, most authors are going to split it at verse 52. So verse 52, if we go, uh, when it comes to um, the way in which we're going to uh, view the various sections of this passage. So verse 52, if any man eat of this bread, he shall live forever in the bread that I will give as my flesh for the life of the world. And then... In 53, when the Jews ask, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? You're going to go from him describing something uh, which is which is uh, which is given from the father and it's going to be the bread of life. And then you're going to get into explaining um, the eating and drinking of flesh and blood. So that's why there is that split right there. And. I don't want to hear any issue about my Eucharist being symbolic if a person hasn't had spiritual experience when receiving it. So true, King. So true. Oh, crap. Where's my notes? Oh, yeah. So that's that's where people are going to split it. Now, this is where we get into a bit of disagreement of how we're going to read these two parts before and after verse 52. Now, what you're going to get from uh, popular level um, expositions of this is you're going to get on one side, you'll get Catholics believe all the way from 26 to 72 that this is speaking about the Eucharist. It's speaking about uh, the body and blood of our Lord um, in, in in the Holy Sacrament. That, that That's the popular level explanation you're going to get for the Catholic side of things. Then on the other hand, you have the Protestant side of things. And verse 26 to 72 that's all symbolic. It's symbolic of, um, of belief in Christ. Now, there's actually a, uh, it's actually a bit more complicated than that. So if we go to the Protestant side of things, you are going to have some who, who say that the entire thing is not about the Eucharist at all. And this is actually going to be Martin Luther, interestingly enough, because Martin Luther, uh, weirdly enough, had a higher Eucharistic theology. But he did say that John 6 was not about the Eucharist at all. That it was, but it was about faith in Christ. So on the way, uh, far end, you're going to get that. But for a large section of the Reformed authors, at least uh, the earlier ones, they're going to say that it has something to do with the Eucharist. So some are going to say uh, completely has to do with the Eucharist. It does. Others like Calvin are going to say, well, it has to do with communion with Christ, which is most manifestly found in the Eucharist. So yes, this, this, uh, this, this passage has to do with the Eucharist, but it doesn't have to do with the Eucharist principally, but only uh, through some connection when it comes to communion with Christ. So you're going to get a range of beliefs which come from the Protestant side. Some are going to say Eucharistic. Others are going to say, yes, Eucharistic, but asterisk. And then others are going to say not Eucharistic at all. Now, on the Catholic, th on the Catholic side, there's going to be two predominant views. First, you do get some 
uh, in the tradition, in a large number of the tradition, ex- especially after the Council of Trent, is uh, this is going to be taken as a badge and mark of defending the Eucharist uh, after the Council of Trent is to say that the whole thing, both first and second part, are Eucharistic in nature and speaking about Eucharistic communion. That, that, is, that is what you're going to get from those who see it as a badge of uh, and mark of loyalty to transubstantiation is to take the whole thing as, as being about the Eucharist and to take it and use it against the Protestants. But uh, that is not necessarily how that, that is not necessarily the only historical position. Because some of the uh, earlier fathers, such as St. Augustine and St. John Chrysostom, when they interpret this passage, they're going to take the earlier, uh, the earlier half before 52 as speaking about belief in Christ. And then the latter half as being Eucharistic. That, that, is, that is how they're going to view the flow of the passage. And this is also supported by, um, this is supported by Franzelin. He's an example. Uh, Pohl is another example. Uh, Catholic theologians, there's always been this wing um, of, of those who view the pre-verse 52 part of this text as speaking about belief in Christ. So when we do talk to Protestants, and they do make arguments uh, from verse 26 to 52 about it, about it being about belief in Christ, we can say, uh, yeah, we can, we can, we can agree to that. But it is going to really be harping on the post fifty-two um, uh, part of this passage, where we're really going to get into a strong disagreement, where where we are really bound to view past fifty-two as being Eucharistic. Okay, so. When it comes to uh, the comparison of the first and second half, so why take the first half and the second half as being different? Well, there's four reasons that I was able to uh, gather together. So if you read the shape of the passage, and this is going to be very—I I, I never realized this until until I had uh, until I had somebody point this out to me. But when you look in the first half and the second half, there is going to first be this temporal difference between the two. So in the first half, he's going to give a uh, there, there, there's going to be this present food, which is going to be given where the second is going to be a future food. The first is uh, which is being or has been given out of heaven and is in is here now in front of you. And the second one is going to be which will be which I will give to you. So there, the first is a present food and the second is going to be a future food. So that's very important, this distinction, because the present food is going to be Christ, which is which has been given from the Father and is to be believed in by them. And the second is going to be his flesh and blood, which is going to be given in the future to be ate, um, eaten and drank. And the second one is going to be the origin. The origin is also very important. The first one is the bread is going to be given by the Father. The bread is given by the Father in the present. And the second one, the flesh and blood is given by the Redeemer himself. It is given by Christ himself in the future. So the origin of the the two breads are going to be different. And then also the object being spoken of is different in the first and the second half. So in the first half, you simply get bread. He, he only speaks of bread. But in the second half, he doesn't say bread. He says flesh and blood. 
So the objects spoken of in these two uh, parts are going to be different. And then fourth, it is this. This is this is actually super interesting. This is this is super duper interesting. And I I didn't notice this. Um, and I just I, I had to read through the chapter. I didn't I didn't believe that this is actually uh, how it was. Because if you look in the passage, where is the expression eat used? Most people always talk about, oh, we're grinding with the teeth. Yeah, yeah, whatever. But where is the expression eat used? It is only used in the second half when it's talking about flesh and blood. It doesn't use the expression to eat in reference to the bread. That is that is that's very interesting. Is you really expect it to be in the first half? Okay, he's speaking of bread. Okay, he's going to be speaking of eating the bread. No, he doesn't talk about eating the bread. He talks about eating the flesh and blood. So, so you see these patterns, uh, which uh, categorize these two halves as at least distinct. And then I'm going to say that that distinction is that the first half is talking about belief in the present, uh, present Lord, which is which is present to the Jews in front of them. Uh, given by the Father, who is described as the bread of life. And then the second half is going to be referring to the Eucharistic Lord, who will be given by the Redeemer in the future to be eaten and drank. And then it's going to be flesh and blood and not that uh, that, that same uh, bread of life, which is going to be given. So you see there is there is that distinction between the two halves, which is which is being made by uh, very consistent uh, differences. So now uh, getting to the rather than the distinction between the two halves, let's just get to the second half. Why? Why are we going to say that the second half is Eucharistic? And before I get into that, I'm going to check the uh, check the comments real quick. Oh, yeah, the Hussites used John 6 to prove that the communion must be received on both forms. That is what they said. Okay. Okay, I don't see anything. I will I will pause again before I, in like 10 or 15 minutes, if you wanted to leave questions and had any. And then I'll probably, in the end, and, you know, I, I frequently stop. Okay, so... Now, there's four reasons to take the second half as referring to the Eucharist, except that it just sounds cool with the, with the two halves uh, compared to one another. And it just makes sense because that's, uh, that, that's what fits um, a, a future giving of flesh and blood to eat. It's, it's, it seems pretty obvious to me because it's kind of funny as a, as a brief side note. You'll see, uh, like I was reading uh, Matthew Henry, who was a very famous uh, Protestant uh, interpreter of scripture from, I want to say he was early 18th century. No, no, late, late 17th century because George Whitfield read Matthew Henry. Yes. So, um, when it comes to Matthew Henry, Matthew Henry's like the papists are obviously wrong that this is about the Eucharist because the Eucharist was not given, uh, for, for some time after that discourse. Well, yeah, no, duh. He says, I will give my flesh and blood. It's, he, he's talking He's talking in the future tense. Of course, it hasn't happened yet. It's going to be happening in the future. This, this, his, this entire discourse is based around the fact that this is something which will be given in the future. And uh, I, 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 thought that was, I thought that was funny. But so the first reason to take this as the Eucharist is that the structure of the whole discourse is going to demand this. 
So throughout the discourse, you get three different kinds of food, which is mentioned. So the first one is going to be the food, which is that manna, which uh, Moses gave uh, to the Israelites in the desert. The second food is going to be the bread of life, which the father gives to men uh, in the incarnate word. And then the third is going to be the Eucharistic uh, body and blood, which Christ himself will give in the future. Manna in the past uh, and then incapable of warding off death. Bread of heaven in the present, which is the son of God made man. And it is going to be the means of spiritual life. And then the third kind is going to be something which is given in a future time, which is different. And it's going to be his flesh and blood to be eaten and drank. So that the, the structure of the discourse, you're going to have something which is past, given in the past, something which is given in the, in the present, and something which is given in the future. So that, that flesh and blood, which is given in the future to be eaten and drank, the the only the at least I, I guess you could say the most fitting and I would say the only thing that makes sense in that in that structure, that threefold structure is going to be that this is going to be Eucharistic. And then now the second reason is going to be uh, the just the obvious fact I was asking where I was being a little cheeky and I was asking around on Twitter the other day. I could see I can see and I agree in the first half. That the similitude of receiving the bread of life, because bread uh, has some sort of uh, similitude to the giving of the sun, because as just as bread sustains us um, in our physical life, so the incarnate word is going to sustain us forever in our spiritual life. Okay, I get that. Receiving bread is just like uh, receiving the spiritual bread of the incarnation through uh, through the mouth of faith, I guess you could say, is just the similar to. Um, receiving physical bread for the sustenance of our physical life. But what is eating flesh and drinking blood a similitude of? Because as, as you saw when explaining the similitude of receiving the bread of life, um, I, I explained the fact that there's some sort of likeness between the two. But what kind of likeness is there to to, to, to faith in eating flesh and, and faith in drinking blood? I, I don't understand what this could be a similitude of except that it's in a reference to uh, the Eucharist. I honestly, I don't get it. I, I was I was racking my brain. I was really racking my brain for eating flesh and drinking blood, what that could be a similitude of. What, what, what kind of what kind of connection there could be uh, between the two? Because you could you could say till your face is blue, that is the similitude of belief and faith. But uh, are you going to explain that similitude and explain why that makes sense? Why? It would even make sense to use that as a metaphor. This would be really a terrible metaphor. Um, uh, it, it, it would just be horrible. Um, so, so that is um, that that is a question that I have. So the third reason is going to be the murmuring of the Jews, and this is the one everybody always brings up: is the fact that the Jews um, murmured and walked away. And uh, our Lord just allowed them to leave and uh, our Lord wouldn't do something like that. But I think I, I think, yeah, that 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 could be a um, it, it's it's a it's an argument uh, to moral certainty. It's it's an argument 
um, of something where we're considering, yeah, our Lord may or may not do that. And we don't think that he would do that. So, so yeah, I guess it's not a, uh, it's a uh, increasingly scientific and discursive argument for, for proving your point. But I think the, the even better, better argument is that our Lord was even willing to, for, for his apostles to leave. And again, you have to understand the nature of this argument as um, an argument, uh, which is more inductive uh, in nature. But uh, that that is that is something which is odd. Uh, his willingness even to let his apostles uh, leave for uh, a seeming misunderstanding. Okay, now fourth, I want to uh, bring a few texts up, but the general interpretation of the fathers, because what you're going to get is if you're if you're discussing with a very smart Protestant. Uh, you'll see that they'll bring up St. Augustine and St. John Chrysostom. And they'll say, well, you think John 6 hasn't been always interpreted as referring to the Eucharist. And you're going to say, yes, Mr. Protestant, I believe it was always in reference to the Eucharist. Well, how do you explain St. Augustine saying here that it's about belief? And they're going to point to the tractates on John. They're going to say how uh, St. John Chrysostom here in his commentary on John explains it thus. And then they're going to be uh, bringing up other fathers, which explain it thus. But what you have to ask is, is it before 52 or after 52? That's what you have to ask yourselves. And then uh, you also have to ask yourselves, are they directly interpreting the text um, in this passage? Because they may mention faith and belief, and uh, St. Augustine certainly does in that section of the tractates. But he is um, bringing, bringing up ancillary issues rather than directly interpreting the text. Because I am going to pull up for you this section from the tractate on tractates John from St. Augustine. And I'm also going to bring up St. Uh, Chrysostom and then uh, Theophilus, uh, St. Cyprian, and then a few of the councils real quick for you. And then after that, I'll take a bit of a break to answer questions. Okay, there you go. Let me see. And I really need to not have 10,000 of these opened up. Okay. I'm going to share my screen. My son is in the room right now. And he's just laughing if you could hear him in the background. Okay. Okay. Augustine also agrees um, with the fact that John's the second half of John six is about the Eucharist. So that is a reason to bring him over here. I guess I'll. <sighs> he disagrees with you, so you're wrong, right, buddy? Okay. Did I share my screen? There you go. He's gonna get my coffee. Okay, so from St. Augustine, tractates on John, and then it's just going to be um, the section that he's going to be. Oh, you just like chords, don't you? Because tractates on John are just interpretations uh, when it comes to the various passages in John. So it's kind of like a commentary. So just just scroll to the, to the section where he's commenting on this, then you'll find it. Okay, where did I begin? Okay, there. 
So uh, he then that eats not his flesh nor drinks his blood has no life in him. And he that eats his flesh and drinks his blood has life. This epithet, epithet, eternal, which he used, answers to both. It is not so in the case of that food which you take for the purpose of staining this temporal life. For he who will not take it shall not live, nor yet shall he who will take it live. For very many, even who have been taken it, die. It may be by old age or by disease or by some causality. But in this food and drink, that is, in the body and blood of the Lord, it is not so. Okay, so what is the body and blood of our Lord, St. Augustine? For, bo buddy. For, <laughs> for both he that does not take it has no life, and he that does take it has life, and that indeed eternal life. And thus he would have this meat and drink to be understood as meaning the fellowship of his own body and members which is the Holy Church in his predestined and called and justified and glorified saints and believers. Of these, the first is already a face, namely predestination. The second and third, that is, the vocation and justification have taken place or taking place, and it will take place. And the fourth, namely the glorifying, is at present in hope, but a future in realization. The sacrament of this thing, namely of the unity of the body and blood of Christ, is prepared on the Lord's table in some places daily, in some places at certain intervals of days, and from the Lord's table it is taken by some to life, by some to destruction. But the thing itself, of which it is the sacrament, is for every man to life, for no man to destruction. Whosoever shall have a partaker thereof. Okay, so we, you're going to see what he's doing here, is he's going to be interpreting this as clearly the Eucharist, but also it is going to be referring to that fellowship. You can't you can't disconnect the two uh, from one another. So this is what, what you'll get is when people are going to quote this, they're just going to stop right there and forget that. No, when when St. Augustine is referring to uh, this text is referring to the fellowship or to belief or to justification or, or, or whatever it may be. He's always going to be connecting it, the, the thing to the sacrament of this thing. That's going to be the sacrament um, of the Lord's table. Okay, so that's going to be from St. Augustine. When Augustine enters the stream, the viewership goes way up. So true. It used to be every time I would bring Augustine on a stream... I wouldn't do it often. I would get a, I would get a new patron <laughs> because somebody would realize that that I'm a father. So they're like, oh, he needs money. But yes, I do. So I do need money. So now um, let's go over to St. John Chrysostom. That's also going to be on New Advent. Let me Fathers of the Church. There you go. Homilies on John. There you go. Why are you getting all these ads? I hate ads. Wish I could destroy them all. Okay, here you go. Homily 47. Jesus therefore said to them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, 
You have not eternal life in yourselves. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has life in himself. One, when we converse of spiritual things, let there be nothing secular in our souls, nothing earthly. Let all such thoughts retire and be banished. And let us be entirely given up to the hearing the divine oracles only. For at the arrival of a king, all confusion is driven away. Much more when the spirit speaks with us, do we need great stillness, great awe. And worthy of all is that which is said today. How it is so here. Verily I say unto you, except the man eat my flesh and drink my blood, he has not eternal life in him. Since the Jews had before asserted that this was impossible, he shows not only that it is not impossible, but that it is absolutely necessary. Wherefore he adds, he that eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. For since he had said, he that eats of this bread shall not die forever, not verbally quoted, and, oh, not verbally quoted, and it was likely that this would stand in their way, just as they before said, Abraham is dead and prophets are dead, and how sayest thou that he shall not taste of death? He brings forward the resurrection to solve the question and to show that the man who eats shall not die at the last. He continually handles the subject of the mysteries, showing the necessity of the action and that it must by all means be done. Notice this would be the mysteries. And if you're not aware, when St. John Chrysostom refers to the mysteries, he's just referring to the sacraments. So, and then, um, my, for my flesh is true meat, my blood is true drink. What is that he says? He either desires to declare that this is the true meat which saves the soul, or to assure them concerning what had been said, that they might not suppose the words to be a mere enigma or parable, but might know that it by all means needful to eat the body. So notice that it's not a mere enigma or parable, but it's referring to the mysteries. And that is the eating of the body. And then, yeah, I think, and then at the end of the, at the end of the homily, he has some applications where he refers back to this. Okay. So yeah, St. John Chrysostom too, is firmly, firmly believes that this is about the reception of the mysteries. Okay. And then the third one is Theophilus of Antioch, and he's going to be commenting on verse 51. Uh, and then he says, which I shall give, this shows his power, for it shows that he was not crucified as a servant in subjection to the Father, but of his own accord. For though he said to have been given up by the Father, yet he delivered himself up also. And observe the bread which is taken by us in the mysteries is not only the sign of Christ's flesh, but is indeed itself the very flesh of Christ. For he does not say the bread which I will give is a sign of my flesh, but is my flesh. The bread is by a mystical benediction conveyed in inaudible words, and by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit transmuted, or one may say transubstantiated, into the flesh of Christ. But why see we not the flesh? Because if the flesh were seen, it would revolt us to such a degree that we should be unable to partake of it. And therefore, in condescension to our infirmity, the mystical food is given to us under an appearance suitable to our minds, under, we may say, species or under accidents. He gives his flesh for the life of the world, in that by dying he destroyed death, by the life of the world too. 
I understand the resurrection, our Lord's death having brought about the resurrection of the whole human race. It may be uh, may mean too the sanctified, uh, beatified spiritual life. For though all have not attained to this life, yet our Lord gave himself for the world, and as far as lies in him, the whole world is sanctified. And notice this is Theophilus of Antioch. So Theophilus, Theophilus, Theophilus I think he was writing in the late 2nd century. Let me get his precise dates. So his apology, his precise dates were in the 170s and 180s, is that's when he was active. He died in 183. So yeah, um, definitely not a uh, a later father and this is interesting how you can kind of see at this at, at this point um you can definitely see some of the uh fully defined theology of the church concerning the eucharist is is here in in seed form okay then saint cyprian also comments on the passage he says that whoever shall eat of his bread uh bread shall live forever as it is manifest that those who partake of his body and receive the Eucharist by the right of communion are living. So on the other hand, we must fear and pray lest anyone who being withhold from communion is separate from Christ's body should remain at a distance from salvation. And he threatens and says, unless you eat the flesh of the son of man and drink his blood, you shall have no life in you. Moreover, he says in the same place, except you eat the flesh of the son of man and drink his blood, you shall have no life in you. Also in the same, Oh wait, no, this is actually a response. Uh, a, a, uh, duplication for some reason but yeah saint cyprian and then from the fathers also we have certain councils uh well you have the council of trent um, obviously who's referring to these texts when it comes to the eucharist but the council of ephesus if you read his uh saint cyril's synodal synodal letter to nestorius you're going to see in john 655 he's going to be uh he's going to talk about one of his arguments for that intimate connection between the natures of Christ and one hypostasis is going to be uh, that some life-giving power is in the flesh of Christ uh, from its union with the divinity. And then he's referring to John's uh, 655 to prove this. So in the Council of Ephesus, this text is used um, in reference to the Eucharist. And then also uh, at the uh, Second Ecumenical Council of Nicaea, uh, when they, uh, when, the iconoclasts argue that the Eucharist is the only image of Christ. Uh, the council fathers cite John six fifty four and say that uh, the Eucharist is not uh, a mere image of Christ, but is truly the very body and blood of Christ. Okay, so that is what we have for those preceding bits. And now I'll get into the text itself. What about verse 63, uh, you silly and smelly Pope enjoyer? Can you link that Theophilus quote? Yes. Let me, I'll throw the link in real quick. 
I just got to find it. I just copied and pasted into a into a note. Why are you? There you go. One second, gosh, why is right now? Um, one second. Do, 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 do. You know, I'll just link you to. Ah. Just look in Thomas's Katina. It's there. <laughs> okay. I can find the sourcing on that later if you want. Just got off of work. W, W in the chat. W in the chat. Yeah, and you'll have uh, every, for everybody discussing in the chat. I'm, I'm, I'm going back and forth. When it comes to uh, how explicit the transubstantiation was in the fathers. Because uh, for for most of most of my time, uh, at least for my conversion, I would say, yeah, it's it's a it's something which was implicitly contained, virtually contained, and then now um, and then developed through the uh, early and medieval church um, as the genuine development from uh, earlier uh, Eucharistic reflection. You're getting some uh, some interesting language from the fathers who are using basically saying substance and accidents, but in, in different words, um, you'll get it in Tertullian. You'll get it in St. Augustine. You'll get it in St. John Chrysostom. They're, they're using this terminology. Uh, and then you, you see this in uh, Theophilus too. They're using this terminology that sounds uh, like they're trying to say substance and accidents and basically have the same concept. So it might be uh, that they were explicitly teaching uh, transubstantiation. I'm, I'm not. I'm not sure. I'm not sure. But either way, uh, you can. It's it's licit. And then what about verse sixty three? Okay, good question. Um, actually, I do have notes on that too. I just decided not to not to say. Okay, where is it? So I'm gonna read. Read this. Dewey Reams, of course, of course. Let me get to John 6, all the way down to 63. 
If then you shall see the Son of Man ascend up where he was before, and I'm assuming he meant 64, and I also meant 64. It is the spirit that quickeneth, the flesh profiteth nothing. The words which I have spoken to you are spirit and life. So there's two different ways that this can be. Um, interpreted. Now, the the Swinglian is going to say, well, it's a spirit that quickeneth, so uh, therefore there's uh, no sort of uh, pre uh, carnal presence when it comes to the Eucharist. Well, obviously there's no sort of carnal or corporeal presence when it comes to the Eucharist. Everybody denies that. So there you've already taken, taken it now. So then it's going to be uh, talking about... Uh, so if we, if we consider the whole scope of the passage... That that uh, basically just doesn't really uh, make any sense. It would uh, it, well, what we you would have is you would have our Lord speaking like twenty verses of absolute nonsense, and then he's going to just retract all that he said before and said, "Oh well, actually, uh, this is uh, my my flesh and blood doesn't doesn't really matter at all." It it's it uh, doesn't really doesn't really make sense to me. So when it comes to uh, when it comes to the text of how we're interpreting uh, spirit and flesh, it makes much more sense to look at the way in which the rest of the New Testament is going to interpret spirit and flesh. Now, some fathers uh, said that the reason um, this verse is included is because they're saying that it is not in a cannibalistic sense that our Lord is being received and that there's always this connection of the flesh with our Lord's divinity. But I don't think that makes that, that is the best reading. I think the better reading is going to be looking at the scriptural opposition that exists between flesh and spirit. You're going to see this throughout St. Paul's writings, for example. So when we're talking about flesh, it's going to be something which is uh, sinful and carnal uh, minded. But when it comes to something which is spirit or spiritual, it's going to be um, the perception of a certain mystery illumined by faith. And that's going to be that opposition between uh, fleshly and spiritual. So it's going to be the reception of our Lord uh, Eucharistically, not after the manner of, uh, I don't know, uh, just chewing on uh, his arm or something that would be um, gross and cannibalistic, but in the sense of a um, an the the reception of illumined mystery. So uh, that that is um, and that th that is the better reading in my mind is to is to latch on to the the opposition of flesh and spirit rather than this being some sort of statement. Um, uh, retracting what he said before that that'd be really be really uh, weird He's talking about the mode in which it's the, the reception exists and not necessarily talking about a denial of what he said before what's up how's it going Christ's flesh does avail much so true so true Okay, so I'm going to share my screen, and then we're just going to go through John 6 with this interpretation in mind. I'll just be explaining as I go along. Okay.
It's going to be with all those good Dewey Reams notes, so you can see um, if I if I ever met if I ever disagree with the Dewey Reams, just take the Dewey Reams and disagree with me. Because it's going to be twenty six through seventy two. Okay, Jesus answered them and said, Amen, amen, I say unto you, you seek me, not because you have seen miracles, but because you did eat of the loaves and were filled. Labor not for the meat which perisheth, but for that which endureth unto life eternal, which the Son of Man will give you. And then this is um, the the meat, the, not the meat which perisheth, but that... Uh, what the Son of Man will give you. I believe this is going to be in reference to eternal life. For him hath God the Father sealed. They said therefore unto him, What shall we do, that we may uh, work the works of God? Jesus answered and said unto him, This is the work of God, that you believe in him who he hath sent. And he's going to go into this discourse about believing in him who he hath sent. They said therefore, What sign therefore dost thou show, that we may see and may believe thee? Uh, what dost thou work? Our father did eat manna in the desert, as it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. So now we have the type, which is manna in the desert. Then Jesus said to them, comparing uh, himself to the type, Amen, amen, I say to you, Moses gave you not bread from heaven, but my father giveth you the true bread from heaven. So there's going to be this dichotomy. The previous bread given by Moses and the current bread given by the father which we need to connect back to, where is it? Uh, believing in him who he hath sent, back there in verse 29. For the bread of God is that which cometh down from heaven and giveth life to the world. So who is it? Christ. And then he's connecting that to believing. They said, therefore, unto him, Lord, give us always this bread. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He that cometh to me shall not hunger, and him that believeth in me shall not thirst, shall never thirst. Notice coming to and believing in. So this, this bread is, is going to be in reference to that. But I said unto you that you also have seen me, and you believe not. All that the Father giveth to me shall come to me, and him that cometh to me I will never cast out. Because I came down from heaven, not to do my own will, but to do the will of him that sent me. Now, this is the will of the Father who sent me, that of all that he hath given me, I shall lose nothing, but I shall raise it up in the last day. And this is the will of my Father that sent me, that every one who seeth the Son and believeth in him may have life everlasting, and I will raise him up on the last day. The Jews therefore murmured at him. And that, now notice, we just went through this whole discourse. Uh, referring to the bread of life, which the Father giveth to heaven, giveth down from heaven, and believing in that bread of life. Now the switch. The Jews therefore murmured at him because, uh, wait, is it? No, no, it's 52, not 42. Oops. No, no, it's going to be continuing. Okay, continuing. The Jews therefore murmured at him because he had said, I am the living bread which came down from heaven. And they said, Is not this Jesus the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How then saith he, I came down from heaven? Jesus therefore asked and said to them, Murmur not among yourselves. No man can come to me except the Father who has sent me draw him. And notice this is proof of the Thomistic view on grace. On grace, see the coat Molinus. Uh, no, no man can come to me except the Father who sent me draw him. Notice, notice, notice. And I will raise him up uh, in the last day. 
It is written in the prophets, and they shall all be taught by God. Everyone that hath heard of the Father and hath learned cometh to me. Not that any man hath seen the Father, but he who is of God, he hath seen the Father. Amen, amen, I say unto you, he that believeth in me hath eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers did eat manna in the desert and are dead. This is the bread which cometh down from heaven, that if any man eat of it, uh, he shall not die. I am the bread of life which come down, came down from heaven. If any man eat of this bread, he shall live forever. And the bread with, that I shall give is my flesh for the life of the world. Okay, notice the change right here. The Jews therefore strove among themselves, saying, How can this man give him this flesh to eat? So notice this first, this first mention of the eating of the flesh. So eating in flesh, we, we switch from bread of heaven, which they were like, yeah, we're okay with that. Yeah, bread of heaven. Yeah, you're basically the man that we understand. You're talking about believing uh, in yourself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But now there's the striving among the Jews because eating the flesh. This is, this is where we get the, um, and then we also get the future tense, the will giving and of the flesh in the eye. Switching from the father uh, giving uh, the bread of heaven, we get I giving my flesh. So how can this man give us his flesh to eat? Then Jesus said to them, Amen, Amen, I say unto you. And then he strengthens it, except you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood. You shall not have life in you. He that eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood, blood has et hath eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is meat indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. He that eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood abideth in me, and I in him. As the living Father hath sent me, and I live by the Father, so that he eateth me, the same shall also shall live by me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. So now he's referring back again uh, to, to the, you're reading that comparison of the three. The bread which came down from heaven, sent by the Father. The manna, sent by the Father. And then that abiding in him by eating his flesh and drinking his blood. He that eateth this bread shall live forever. These things he said, teaching in the synagogue in Capernaum. Many, therefore, of his disciples hearing this said, This saying is hard, and who can hear it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples murmured at this, said to him, Doth this not scandalize you? If then you shall see the Son of Man ascend up where he was before. It is the Spirit that quickeneth, the flesh profiteth nothing. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you that believe not. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were that did not believe and who he was that would betray him. And he said to them, therefore, did I say to you that no man can come to me unless it was given by my father after this. And then notice this is very important because the Jews, and this is very important for interpreting the, um, the flesh profiting, nothing profiting, nothing as no man is coming to him because they're fleshly. They're of the flesh. And the giving of the Father, that is the spiritual. So it, again, it's the it's carnal mindedness versus um, intellect illumined by faith. This does this has nothing to do with uh, the fact that Noma actually the Eucharist is uh, is is fake. Like no, it, this is not what it has to do. After this, many of his disciples went back and walked no more with him. And Jesus said to the twelve, "You will you also go away?" And Simon Peter answered to him, "Lord, to whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have known." that thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus answered them, Have not I chosen you twelve, and one of you is a devil? Now he meant Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, for this same was about to betray him, whereas he was one of the twelve. Okay.
So that is all. I'm going to see if there's any questions in the live chat. Well, the mystery is 849 based. Wait. Did I mix up the Theophili? I mixed, I definitely mixed up the. I might have mixed up the, I might have accidentally said a different Theophilus. Oops. That's embarrassing. Um, do, 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 do. Do, do, do. Perhaps I definitely need to. Um, I think I might have. Because there's like 10 different. There's like Theophilus of Alexandria, Theophilus of Antioch. There's, there's a bunch of different Theophili, so I might have mixed up my authors. Um, okay, so. Oh, no, he, he's quoting from Ambrose on the Mysteries. Oh, okay. Um, what's up? Just made it. Uh, now consider whether the bread of angels be more excellent or the flesh of Christ, which is indeed the body of life. That manna came down from heaven, that is above the heavens that was of heaven this is the lord of the heavens you recognize now which are the more excellent for light is better than shadow truth in a figure the body of its giver than manna from heaven so true that's actually a really good argument uh that that's often used too is you have uh that uh since the since manna is the type of the eucharist the eucharist has to be better uh than manna since the the um the fulfillment is greater than the type Uh, I got to check out, but please post the stream so I can listen to the rest of it later. Yep, it'll be right here. Uh, why do Calvinists deny transubstantiation? That's what I'm assuming that question is. Why do they deny it? Um, they deny it for multiple reasons. Uh, if you actually don't don't read one, uh, honestly, I, I was actually going to recommend a work, but it's safer um, for everybody. That uh, unless you have a permission from uh, your spiritual father not to read heretical works, so that's why I'm not going to recommend <laughs> a uh, a um, dialogue against uh, the Roman Catholic view of the Eucharist. So their their reasoning is going to be um, that there there's a return. There's there's a sort of uh, resourcement movement that happens uh, at the Reformation. That they're trying to return 
uh, ad fontes to, to the to the uh, to the fount to the sources. So they're returning ad fontes. So in Calvinistic Eucharistic theology, what they're doing is they're going back and reading Saint Augustine, and especially his tractates on John. You see, for example, in the Thirty Nine Articles, uh, this this very section that I quoted from is going to be where the Thirty Nine Articles quote from in order to um, support their view of the Eucharist. So there's this resourcement. And the resourcement, uh, what happens is there's this moving away from the uh, medieval language concerning the Eucharist of, um, of substance and accident and the like in, in the Reformed. And they're going to be referring to um, the sign and then the thing signified. Is That is the language they're, they're going to be referring to um, uh, the relationship between signs uh, rather than the relationship between uh, metaphysical uh, realities when it comes to substance and accidents. So that, that is, that is the biggest influence for the denial of transubstantiation is they're trying to return to uh, Augustinian language surrounding the Eucharist. And I think St. Thomas does a better job of um, Augustinian language surrounding the Eucharist, but um, what, what do I know? Okay, so is professing belief in the true presence and having valid orders enough to have a Eucharist? Anglo Reformed Catholics come to mind. Um, so, really, um, the the main issue, which is going to be brought up by Leo the Thirteenth and Apostolic Curie. Is going to be more of the sacrifice, the Eucharist. I mean, the the, the sacrificial and perpetuatory um, part of uh, of belief in the Eucharist. Which, while there is certainly sacrificial language, which is found in the Book of Common Prayer, that um, this is uh, mostly used in, a, in an equivocal sense. Is, uh, for example, the sacrifice of Thanksgiving, a sacrifice of ourselves, a participation in the sacrifice of Christ. While these are all using the language of sacrifice, it's using it in a in a connected, so it's really an analogous sense. But um, they're they're going. This is this is a huge problem that you have. Um, is there's going to be uh, various equivocations that are always um, that are always used in discussions around the Eucharist. Like, yeah, I believe in uh, in real presence. And by real, I'm going to gloss a certain uh, virtue. I'm not going to gloss substance. I'm going to gloss virtue. Uh, and virtue means power, a certain a certain, uh, a certain power uh, wherein that I am able to participate and ascend um, until heaven uh, and, and to receive uh, Christ. That's what I'm going to mean by real, um, a certain pneumatic presence uh, that, that's found. Or by sacrifice, I'm going to mean... Um, a certain reception of benefits, a certain uh, sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving. I'm going to mean a sacrifice of myself. It, these these are the various things that we mean by sacrifice. So these are all um, it's it's dirty uh, tricks, uh, dirty Protestant tricks, which are being played here. Um, so so that's that's more of where the concern is around. But when it comes to uh, uh, the, this question, this question is debated over what is that exactly that intention and which theological positions uh, would need to be held uh, with this intention. But I would just defer to having you read Apostolic Curie and the, and the various parts which are used because you, Sapius Officio, which is the response of the um, Anglican bishop, bishops to the declaration of the invalidity of Anglican orders. And when it comes to its reading of 
uh, Anglican uh, historical theology. It, it's um, subtractarian garbage, um, to put it nicely. Okay. So do Catholics affirm that even the unbelieving eat the body of Christ, but unto judgment, of course? Yes, we do. Um, we, we would we would say that they eat the body of Christ unto judgment. And that's how we're going to read St. Augustine's language, that um, that the wicked merely press their teeth on the body of Christ is uh, that's not going to be and that the wicked do not receive the thing which is signified by the by the sacrament. It's uh, we would we would gloss that as um, as they would not be receiving it in a manner that is gracious in the same way um, that let's say you have the, the let's say you have somebody who is preaching the gospel to a certain group of people and half the group of people are um, are uh, drawn by the father in order to uh, profess faith in the in, in the articles which are given in the in the sermon and the other half reject it who who received the words of the sermon into their ears well both did one received them unto judgment and the other received them unto grace one of them truly and spiritually received it and the other only uh, carnally received it um, one under judgment, one under grace. So in, in, a, in a similar sense uh, is the reception of the Eucharist. Is they're still receiving the body of Christ. They're just not receiving the body of Christ rightly or justly. And it makes, I would say, more sense out of the passage from 1 Corinthians. So uh, I can pull that up. 1 Corinthians 11 if, uh, off the top of my head. Okay, so somebody's going to correct me on this. Okay. Okay, so verse 27. So, okay, verse 27. Therefore, whosoever shall eat this bread or drink the chalice of the Lord unworthily shall be guilty of the body and of the blood of the Lord. But let a man prove himself, and so let him eat of that bread and drink of the chalice. For he that eateth and drinketh unworthily eateth and drinketh judgment to himself, not discerning the body of the Lord. So we would say that um, that they were eating and drinking of the body and blood unworthily, and therefore they are guilty of it and judged. So that is that is how I would gloss that. Okay. Okay. If a morsel uh, of the host falls and a mouse comes up and nibbles on it, what do you do? Burn it, throw it out, eat it? The mouse? Oh, or the morsel. Okay. <laughs> the morsel. And is the mouse receive mouse receiving it? No, the the mouse is the mouse is not receiving it. And um, so when when it comes to uh, the destruction of the form, 
is uh, let's say you have a, a Eucharistic host and there's a fire and the Eucharistic host gets destroyed. You don't go and collect up the ashes and like pull them up and then like venerate ashes. Like, no, you don't do that. Because when the form Okay, I'm thinking for good now. Nobody could confirm. Yeesh. Um, yes, I think I'm good now. Okay, so the mouse receiving it. Again, okay. Oh, good night. Good night, my son's going to bed. Good night, boy. Uh, with, with the mouse receiving the, uh, the, the morsel that fell on the ground, there would be the destruction... Of the uh, the form, so there wouldn't be um, it, you wouldn't like have to take the mouse or anything and, and like just just like destroy the mouse or burn the mouse or eat the mouse. You wouldn't have to do anything like that. And the mouse also wouldn't uh, receive the Eucharist since uh, the 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 virt the power of the sacrament in the reception of the Eucharist is it must be uh, received by a uh, is is like not somehow like received. In in a in I don't even know how to explain it. it it's it's received. <laughs> it's rec the grace grace is uh, certain uh, accidents which are um, 
which are received into the into the soul of a person. There, there are certain habits, so there it wouldn't be like the mouse would be receiving grace or anything. It doesn't have a rational soul. It, it would it would be as if um, it it would be that matter is not disposed to receive uh, the the form of the uh, of sanctifying grace. Therefore, the sacramental grace wouldn't be received. Um, yeah, so. The, the the mouse wouldn't receive and then to the to the morsel that you would have left over which has been nibbled on the mouse by the mouse the usual practice is they'll take it and they'll have like a bowl of water and they'll put it uh, they'll put the eucharistic host in the bowl of water uh, in the tabernacle and then wait for it to dissolve and then once the the form is dissolved the, the host is uh completely dissolved then it's no longer the body and blood of our lord which is why when you eat it, it doesn't like you're not just like after mass, you have the the like in your stomach, the, the body and blood of our Lord, because the form is destroyed by by eating it. Um, so that, that usually answers that usually clears up most of these weird objections you'll get about people asking about like digestion and going to the bathroom and stuff like that. Um, Saddest part is that the amount of people who receive without going to confession. Stephen Nemesh argues that Augustine doesn't teach real presence. Well, you know, there's there's just there's like the, the weird schizo sort of reading of everything. Like they they can never you notice these guys they'll they'll posit these things. They'll be like oh maybe uh, maybe um, you I mean you have you have authors like um, what's his name. Darwell Stone is writing about like the ancient context of the using of the words figures and signs and stuff like that. And his relation to the things signified like, Oh, that doesn't, none of that stuff matters. We're the first generation to read all of this stuff. Of course, nobody before uh, read this, but with, with these guys, it, it sounds kind of plausible until you just ask the simple question of, of like, well, if, if the church had believed in a certain uh, Zwinglian view of things, when one, when did it change? And two, why didn't everybody like flip out? <laughs> Imagine you have like your your fifth century Zwinglian Baptists out there, uh, and you have all your Zwinglian Baptists. And then one time, uh, somebody comes up and is like, you know, I think um, that host up there is not just a uh, a mere symbol. I think it's something more than that. Um, everybody would would rightly like beat the crap out of that guy like what's what's wrong with you like if everybody was wingling they just beat the crap out of the guy they kick him out they'd excommunicate him be like what's wrong with you get out of here but that just doesn't happen you see the complete opposite <laughs> you see the people who are coming up um and saying the opposite are just getting the crap beaten out of them like literally like beaten up like you read some of the medieval guys who like put forward theories like swingly they just get beat up they just beat them up based beat them up um they, they just get beat up and thrown out and excommunicated and they're forced to, to, to recant their beliefs because it, you, you never, you never get this point. Like oh, <laughs> you, you get all these people saying like, okay, there's like this dominant view in, in early here. And all of a sudden everybody, um, it, everybody just switches their mind and then nobody says anything about it. Like, okay, come on now, grow up. Okay. It hurts my head to listen to. Exactly. Exactly. It's uh, again, you, you honestly, I, I'm at the point where when I listen to some of these guys uh, in some of the readings that they have of these authors, if, if I, I get really blackpilled because really, if you had like a Mormon guy up there who wanted to say that Augustine 
uh, didn't actually believe that wine was received in communion, but it was just water. Like, like Mormons teach that and stuff. They teach that the early church uh, was actually uh, receiving water and not wine in the Eucharist. And we can see it from uh, Cyprian's letters where Cyprian refers to a certain group. And, and like you can make this whole argument about how the early church did not use wine, but used water in, in their Eucharist. You can make that argument. It's idiotic. It's really stupid. But if you just you can twist any piece of a uh, body of evidence you want to to prove your point. So it's just a bit blackpilling. Um, and then uh, my my advice to people is just like whatever sounds um, obviously stupid, just reject that. And to be uh, to as nice as I can say to uh, to Dr. Namesh, um, positing your closet Zwinglians in the early church uh, sounds obviously stupid. So I'm just going to reject it, no matter what kind of reading you're going to put forward. And anytime anybody has this like my esoteric, cool new thing, just reject it. It's it's stupid. Okay. Do 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 do. No, the daily mass goers do not go before mass. Um, usually it's assumed um, that if you're going uh, to daily mass, that you're in a state of grace. That is one of the dangers of going to daily mass um, is you can uh, not properly discern whether you're in a state of grace. There's nothing wrong with going if, if you're not sure um, or if you need to go to confession, still going to daily mass than making an act of spiritual communion. There's nothing wrong with that. Uh, that's actually a laudable practice. Um, you don't always need to sacramentally receive. Don't 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 let anybody uh, tell you that you always need to sacramentally receive um, if you're not sure. An, an act of spiritual communion is uh, is sufficient, although um, if you can, definitely do receive. Uh, definitely do, and if you're not sure of any mortal sins, definitely do receive. Okay, audio is fine. Video is lagging. It's all back to normal. Okay, good. Uh, only humans can give sacraments. True. Oh, so the form is destroyed via eating. Yes, and that's also why. Um, while, while I get the sentiment, um, when people talk, this, this is, and I, I don't even know if I should say this to, to, um, just because I know people get mad at me for saying this, but. When it comes to like particles coming off the sacrament, like let's say pe people use the argument that um, when it comes to uh, receiving on the hand, that there's going to be like these micro particles of bread or like micro crumbs on your hand uh, after receiving on the hand. And you're going to be uh, like wiping off or like putting in your pocket or like washing your hands, just washing. And there's just many particles of our Lord's body just everywhere uh, throughout the entire world. And you have to, um, you have to fear that. Uh, but the reason that this is uh, misplaced piety, while, while it certainly, um, it certainly can be uh, a certain act of piety to, to make sure that there is this extra care with even um, the appearance of letting any part of our, the body of our Lord, um, uh, fall to the ground or anything like that, which is why the church in her ceremonies, um, in order to display this, 
goes to such great lengths. Like you'll see with the, um, if you pay attention to your priest, keeps his fingers closed. Um, you pay attention to the wiping at the end. Uh, and then the ablutions with the, with the chalice and all that stuff. You, you pay, pay close attention to that. But since with, with the micro particles, uh, it's tiny little crumbs and stuff like that. Since the, uh, the, the, the form is not uh, still present, uh, it, it's, it's no longer the body of our Lord since the form is no longer present. So, good question like for for example uh as blasphemous as a thought as this is if you like uh, i i don't know took took the the precious blood of our lord and then used it as cooking wine or something uh or like mixed it in with like a large vat of water or something it's not like you would just have these tiny little particles of of the blood of our lord in this big thing of water um what would happen is since the since the form of wine is destroyed uh by that mixing then it would just uh, it would no longer be the blood of our Lord. So that's that's the way all of these really, everybody always asks these weird questions. Everybody's always wondering about these weird questions. I just figured out that I just take the time at the end of the stream to answer all of them um, because that, that is a concern for some people. He has a degree in, oh, I don't even know where, where did uh, Dr. Nubesh go to? Go to, uh, Go to school. Um, Fuller. Oh, I know Fuller. That's probably because I was. Probably because I was a Protestant. That's why the only reason I know what Fuller is. Yeah, Fuller. I feel like I remember there's some being like some weird stuff about them. Uh, yeah, it's like it can be a little bit um, liberal. That's the weird stuff about them. Then a little bit like woman-y and stuff. Yeah. That is where he went. Um, doo -doo -doo. Sorry, I'm just looking at some stuff. Okay. Constantine killed Pastor Jim and destroyed all copies of their 5th century King James Bible. So true. So true. Dude, I don't even know how Baptists still exist after the internet came out and the church fathers were put in public domain websites. Of like, honestly, I think, I think once like, like think, think about this. Once the Vatican, like I, I was talking with a friend about this. It's like once the Vatican learns how to use the internet, because look at the Vatican website, it's terrible. Once the Vatican learns how to use the internet and use it to its fullest uh, capacity when it comes to research, like Protestantism will be done. It will be finished. It will be annihilated. Just just by like putting out all this stuff on the internet <clears throat> and they start starting monastic orders for the translation of stuff into various languages, like it'll it'll just be done basically. Uh, 
Um, sorry for another question, but did you say after examination, if you're not aware of any mortal sin you can receive, the God's cover you if you seriously doubt that you've done such a thing? Well, yes, yes. Um, it, after after examination, if you're not aware of any mortal sins you can receive. Okay, so what is the connection between the Lord's Prayer and the Eucharist? Except, uh, especially, okay, I will um, pull up Greek New Testament, Matthew 6, uh, to show you guys, like, what, what he's talking about. Um, and then I also need to pull up my Latin Vulgate, because this is really cool, actually. So Matt, Matthew 6, Greek, NT. So, I don't want none of this stupid interlinear stuff. Where does it start? Okay, so Pater Hemon. Okay. Okay, so I'm going to be, there is a connection to the Eucharist here, so it's really cool. So uh, right here in verse 11, ton harton hemon ton Epi usian dos emin semeron. So the bread, our, our, and then ton epi usian dos emon uh, semeron. So um, uh, our kind of like our present uh, present day. So many are going to interpret this phrase ton epi usian dos. I mean, Cimarron, because they are, um, and then that's give, actually. So, um, and then they're going to say, okay, this is referring to daily bread uh, right here. But um, others are going to interpret this phrase differently. Uh, because ton epi usion. So if you remember um, usion, like homo usias, Usion means uh, can mean being um, or can be substance. So for for this case, uh, we're just going to take it as um, being. And then epi, epi is a certain prefix which can mean super. So uh, ton epi usion would be super substantial. So ton or ton emon ton epi usion could mean our super substantial bread. So give us, um, give us this day our super substantial bread. So has anybody translated it like that before? Has anybody trans translated ton epiusion like that? Because this is a very rare phrase in Greek literature, extremely rare. So daily is kind of just like chucking it out there. But if we go to the Vulgate. If we go to Jerome's Vulgate, Vulgate, and Matthew 
six. This is going to be verse 11. Matthew 6, 11. This is really cool because most people think that the Lord's Prayer is just from the Vulgate. But it's actually not. It's not at all. So what we see is there's been disagreement for a very long time on how to uh, interpret this. Look. Panem nostrum super substantialum uh, da nobis odie. So our super substantial bread. Panem nostrum super substantialum. And don't make fun of my pronunciation. So our super substantial bread. That's how Jerome would interpret that. Very interesting. So something which is super substantial or uh, a certain bread, which is um, above the, uh, the the normal substance, uh, I guess uh, the, uh, you, you could interpret that. That would really only refer to uh, the Eucharistic bread. Um, so if you want to interpret Tanip Yusian like that, I personally do. Uh, that, that's my uh, preferred reading. You could. But um, yeah, I, I think that's a really good argument for, for that. Okay, I basically only just got in, but I assume you've already talked about communion of the hand. Yes, I have. Um, I have. So would you say the breadcrumbs are still our Lord's body, or are we referring to microparticles when they said lost their form? I mean, this is this is kind of a, a bit of a casuistry right here, but if it if it uh, re basically retains the, the form of bread. So I'm kind of referring to microparticles. So if you have like a smaller chunk, I don't know, maybe you have like the piece the size of what's, what's a good representative, like the size of like the end of this pencil right here, like a piece that big. Like I, I would say, yeah, you're going to want to uh, treat it like you would the Lord's body. But if it's like a micro piece, because technically like, um, smelling something is actually having particles of that thing up your up your nose. So if you smell the communion wine, you're you're not going to say, "Oh, up my nose is the blood of our Lord." Like, no, that's just silly. It's uh, it's in its uh, retention of, of the form. What did I miss? Not much. So I'm going to and super substantial bread is uh, yes. <laughs> Transubstantiation persists as long as form of bread and wine persist. Yes, correct. Um. So I'll stay for another minute or two, see if you have any other questions about anything about the Eucharist, if you want. Uh, if you want to know about the reform view of the Eucharist, you want to know about, uh, I haven't done as much reading on the Lutheran view of the Eucharist, so probably can't answer as many questions about that. Um, but anything, anything you're wondering about. I really, uh, honestly, my favorite thing to talk about is, is how, um, how the Lord's Prayer is actually uh, Eucharistic and proves transubstantiation. I only recognize the other Paul. I recognize only one uh, true ecumenical council. Oh, man. I'm going to troll the other Paul.
Oprah. Oh man. I just kind of want to just block everybody on Twitter some days. Not the other Paul, some of the people in his replies. Some days I just want to block everybody. Okay. Uh, were there any non-Lutheran Protestants that affirm that Christ is present in the mode of substance? Good question. So uh, Calvin, interesting, you would, you would not think of Calvin, but interestingly enough, uh, Calvin, he actually um, would use the language of, of substance sometimes when it referred to the type of presence uh, that was in the Eucharist. So, so there you have it. Uh, they would they would talk about um, substance, but usually they would talk about virtue or uh, or power. Um, but yeah, uh, most of them would not. Um, there's some quotes. Uh, if you have your Anglican friends, which are like Soy Jack, actually Melanchlot Andrews. Um, I have a good article for you, which shows that Lancelot Andrews was actually just a normie Calvinist. Andrews, North American Anglican. Yeah, because a lot of a lot of there's a lot of Tractarian uh, reading back comes to Anglican history where they're like, oh, actually, uh, guys, we were um, based in Catholic, but uh, actually, Melanchthon Andrews was based in Catholic, but he was just an army reformed and reading re actually reading his works. Uh, makes it very, yes. Well, actually, uh, Bishop Lancelot Andrews debunked. Well, he was just a Calvinist on the Eucharist, as this article shows. Uh, is the Aristotelian theory of hylomorphism dogma, or is it just a Thomistic understanding? Uh, you can't make philosophical, um, so per se, you can't make philosophical uh, theories dogmatic, but you would be denying a certain article of faith with your uh, denial of, uh, I mean, it depends on what you mean, the Aristotelian theory of hylomorphism. Uh, are you talking about uh, the way in which uh, certain things are individuated, or are you talking about the fact that uh, form and matter exist? Uh, it just depends on what you mean by that. But but yeah, if you if you deny the existence of form and matter, then like shut up, nerd. You're you're denying the Catholic teaching when it comes to the body and soul, um, which is dogmatic. Um. Can you explain why specifically the Protestant view that eating flesh was faith fails? Well, uh, the reason it fails is, as I said, uh, and I'll give uh, two of my reasons again, is the first one is that distinction between the, the present belief and then the future, uh, the future giving of flesh and blood um, to be, to be eaten and drank. Uh, it, it wouldn't make sense. He'd kind of be, I guess, uh, Re repeating himself, but uh, the object is different. The um, the action is different. The the subject is different. The time is different. The uh, all all of that all of that is different. Um, and then second, uh, when it when it, so like the shape of the the mana, um, the, the the mana the 
Christ incarnate Lord, the sacrament of the future. That 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 shape uh makes the most sense of the the progression of the chapter. But second, uh you can also uh prove that from the fact that that, that wouldn't be really a meaningful similitude. Okay. Did they actually kick you out of RBC simply because you were reading Newman? No, that's not why they kicked me out of RBC. They kicked me out for um, my belief in the in a historically acceptable reform view of baptism. Um, yeah. Okay, I have to get going. It's 7.30 already. Got to get back to my job search actually, because that's what I'll be doing. So thank you for stopping by and I will see you guys later. Remember, it's Trinity Tide, so we worship one God in Trinity and Trinity in unity.